Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Amen. If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word as we turn back to the book of Joshua. Tonight uh, we will look at uh, Joshua 21. We will not read the whole of Joshua 21, but portions and selections of it. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' house of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell among with their pasture land for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And then as we continue to see down, we see that uh, the different heads of the Levites are given different selections along with those that are in their family. So we see the, the Kohathites. Uh, verse 6, the Girgashites, and then verse 13, the descendants of Aaron, all of which are a part of the tribe of Levi. And we see the various cities that were given to them. If you turn back to the end of the chapter then, we read this in verse 41. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it. So it was with all these cities. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a few years ago now, I had the privilege of going to Burma, to what is now known as Myanmar with a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor, Wayne Curls. And Wayne is a faithful minister of the Lord, now in his 70s, but he still makes several trips uh, a year to Burma and ministers there amongst uh, Presbyterian pastors there in Myanmar. Uh, But that wasn't always the case. Uh, He was a pastor here in the States, and even before he was a pastor, He actually came into the ministry later in life, and so ministry was a second career for him in a sense. He came out of the business world and was quite successful in that business world. In fact, he had a Ph.D. uh, and a high-paying job in a, a biomedical field, but he sensed that call to ministry, and so he left that quite lucrative career and went into the ministry along with his wife and four children. And then they went off to their first call. And his first call was here in Georgia. Central Georgia Presbytery called him in the early 80s to be a church planter in the city of Albany, Georgia. And he agreed to this. 
and then he was told how much he would make. They offered him about $1,000 per month, which for in the early 80s was quite low. And Wayne said to the brothers of the Presbytery, brothers, I don't think I can provide for my wife and my four children on that salary, to which one of the brothers in the Presbytery sympathetically and compassionately said, we'll show you how. (laughs) And so off they went on their low budgets to do the Lord's work. Indeed, the testimony of Wayne is that the Lord did provide for them, but it doesn't mean that it was easy, and perhaps unnecessarily so. And what we see from this passage tonight is that the Lord makes adequate provisions for those that minister in the land. In this case, it's the tribe of Levi. They were to be the ministers in the land of Israel. They were to give the law. They were to give the word. They were to perform the duties of holy worship and sacrifice in the land. And they were to give themselves to this fully and completely. In other words, they were to free themselves from other distractions, from other worldly cares, and they were to devote themselves to ministry. As a result, they were to live off of the tithe that was given by the rest of the people, as well as these land, this land that was given to them here in Joshua chapter 21. And so as we see from this uh, chapter, we see some of what is the purpose of the Levites as well as the provision given to them and how those provisions and those principles still apply and carry over today. So I want to look at this chapter in three points, the promise, the purpose, and the provision for God's ministers. First, the promise for God's ministers. Again, just to remind you of where we are in the book of Joshua. We are in this section of chapters uh, 13 through 21 where they are dividing the land. So they have come into the land, they have conquered the land, and now they're beginning to divide the lands between the particular tribes. But as we saw, there's a uh, specific purpose given to two portions of lands. Several cities, that is. In chapter 20 that we saw two weeks ago, we saw the cities of refuge. And now we see these cities that were to be given to the Levites. And was mentioned two weeks ago, we see, I think, two primary principles here. That as a nation is established, not only the nation of Israel, but any nation, you need to have these two aspects of civil and religious Rule. There needs to be justice and morality. Uh, without morality, there is no justice. Both are essential components to civil society. And so, as we saw two weeks ago with the cities of refuge, those that had killed but had killed unintentionally, perhaps through an accident, could go and flee to these cities and find refuge. And we see several of the principles of God's justice in these cities of refuge. We see judicial process, we see motive, we see accessibility to all, we see non-prejudicial or biased judgments to, to, or biased judgments to, to be made, and we see the importance of life. 
many of such principles have been adopted by our judicial system, and we are thankful for it because we are better off. And we also then looked at how Christ is our ultimate city of refuge, that we are to come and find refuge in him, that there is both justice and mercy displayed in these cities, but also displayed ultimately in Christ. So having looked at that civil component, we now turn to this religious component. We see this equal establishment, if you would, of this fundamental pillar in the establishment of God's people as a nation. And so if you'll look with me at chapter 21, then we see the Levites coming to Joshua and to Eliezer, the priest at that time, saying, give us our land. You might say, why are they being so pushy and self-seeking? Are they being presumptive that they should be given land? Well, no, we see as they say in verse 2, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture land for our livestock. And so it was very much the command of God that had, uh, was told to Moses, and they are reminding Joshua that that is what God had commanded to Moses, and now the time has come to receive that which was promised to them. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Everyone, every tribe got a portion of the land. Well, that's not absolutely true. Every tribe was given a portion of the land except the Levites. In chapter 13 of Joshua, we hear this in verse 13, to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. And then it goes on in that same chapter, verse 33, to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't have any land whatsoever. No, it just means that they were not designated a certain portion of the land. They did not have a certain outlined area as a whole for themselves as a tribe. There is no tribe of Levi in Israel. So in that way, they did not have an inheritance like the rest of the 12 tribes. But that doesn't mean that they were to be without land at all. No, their land, as we see here in chapter 21, was to be scattered amongst the other tribes. The cities of the Levites were to be amongst the other 12 tribes, and the other 12 tribes were actually supposed to give a portion of their land specifically for the Levites to dwell therein. This was a part of their purpose to live amongst the people as we will see and so as we uh, before we go into looking at that land we see something though I think very important that as the Levites come they're not claiming their own uh, right to land no they're claiming the promises of God they ask that God would give that which he has promised and I think we shouldn't pass that as as we think about prayer and as our church has an emphasis on prayer, as our summer Sunday school right now is on prayer and we have this call to prayer every week in our bulletin, we need to learn something from the Levites, from God's ministers at that time. 
that as we come to God in prayer, we should also pray those same commands or those same promises. That we shouldn't ask for what God has not promised because we have no authority to do so. But those things that he has promised, those things we should pray. And it's not presumptive to do so. We know that God has given his promises to us. And we should take those things to heart. In fact, if you think about the Lord's Prayer, this is exactly what the Lord teaches us to do, is it not? As he tells us to pray for the kingdom of God to come, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that he would give to us our daily bread, that he would forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of our debtors, that we would not be led into temptation, that he would deliver us from evil. All of those are promises. Those are promises that we should pray through. And so let me just encourage you, if you're struggling in your prayer life, take the Lord's Prayer, take it phrase by phrase, and use those phrases to dwell on those things and to even go as far as to claim the promises of God. Oftentimes that can be seen as a charismatic uh, idea. Well, no, it's only so much as the fact that God has promised them to us. We should pray for them and have that eager expectation that he will fulfill them in his timing, obviously not in ours. But all of these promises are ours. So as you read in your own Bible, we should mark out those promises that God has given to us, promises that God would be our God and the God of our children, which is confirmed to us by the waters of baptism, as we saw this morning, the promise that if we lack wisdom, we should ask, and he would give it generously, the promise that if anyone is sick, that they should call for the elders and come and pray and anoint with oil, and they will be healed. Again, all these promises are given to us, and so we must Mark them and take note of them and use them in our, in our prayer. And our prayers will become, I think, much more powerful, much more effectual because we're praying back God's word to him. John Calvin says this, talking about praying the promises. He sets forth all that he allows us to seek of him and all that is of benefit to us. All that we ask. In doing so, we are requesting nothing absurd Nothing strange or unseemly, nothing unacceptable to him, but rather what he has told us to ask. Isn't that a great phrase? That we are just praying what he has told us to ask. And so, again, this is a good and right and prudent thing that the Levites do coming to Joshua, saying that the Lord commanded this, and this is our rights. I think the same encouragement should go to us as we go to the Lord in prayer and see how the Lord will answer those prayers according to his will. Well, not only do we see the promises of God's minister, but we see the purpose of God's ministers here. Uh, As we look at these Levites, who exactly were they? Well, we know that Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi. They were, in essence, the Levites to be ministers within the land. They were to be God's earthly representatives of his word, of his character, of his presence. Pointing, obviously, to uh, the, pointing the people of God to their God. So that they would not forget all that the Lord 
had commanded them. And they did this in several ways. One of which was to maintain the worship of God. If you read through Leviticus, you know that God is very particular about his worship. They were to offer worship in a very specific way, in a way commanded by God, in a way that was pleasing to God. Now, in the New Covenant, we don't have the same type of ceremony. Obviously, we don't come with the same type of sacrificial system because Christ is our sacrifice. But you cannot read the book of Leviticus and think that God has absolutely no concern for his worship in the New Covenant. No, he has concern for his worship in the New Covenant just in the same way as he had concern for worship in the Old Covenant. And so... In the new members class that I'm presently teaching, we talk about worship. And I try to explain why it is that we worship in the way that we do. Because our worship is oftentimes quite different than what others may be used to. And I hope to give a good, adequate, biblical description of what goes into our worship and to and for why. And I try to use this analogy. I'll usually pick out one man in the class, and I'll usually ask this man, uh, what makes for a good birthday gift for your wife? Would it be best to give what you think is best or what you know that she wants? And a good gift, as you know, is not what we think is good. A good gift is what we know that they would delight in. It is what they would want. Perhaps that's, again, on this Father's Day, we would try to get gifts that would be pleasing to our fathers that they would take delight in. We might take no delight in that type of gift, but it doesn't matter what we want, it's what they would want. And the same principle goes for God in worship. We don't give what we think is good, we give what God says is good and what he wants. And as a result, I think what takes place is that we begin to delight in that which God delights in. And the Levites were to maintain the holiness of God in their worship, in the way that they would minister, uh, as they would minister before the altar, as they would minister the sacrifice in the tabernacle and then in the temple. So they were first to maintain the worship of God. Second, they were to be teachers of the law. Deuteronomy 33.10, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your laws. In Second Chronicles, we read this story of Jehoshaphat, who was a righteous king, who sent out the Levites. And it says that he sent them out amongst the cities of Judah to teach among the people the book of the law. I think this was noted because this had not been done in the past, even though it should have been done in the past, because that is what God commanded the Levites to do, that they were to be the teachers of the law, that they were to be continually giving the law in the land. And as you know, Israel's history, oftentimes they would stray quite far from God, what God commanded. And then there would be times of reform with some good kings. And here we see that one of those times of reform with Jehoshaphat sending out the Levites again to teach the law, to explain it and apply it to the people. And so that the people again would not forget God or their purposes to live 
as the people of God. Again, John Calvin says this, the Levites were acting as stewards of God, preventing their countrymen from revolting from piety. They were preventing them from revolting from that which God had commanded them to do. So they were to be teachers of the law. Third, they represented the people before God and God before the people. We see this in several different ways. Uh, They would represent God before the people, obviously, in the reading of the law, but they would represent the people before God, especially in the forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. They would be the ones that would make the sacrifice on the behalf of the people, that you as a tribe of Israel would come, and as a person you would present this to the Levites, and they would come and they would offer that sacrifice before the altar. And we know specifically that the high priest would go once a year into the Holy of Holies and there sprinkle the blood. And on his breastplate, as he would go and do so, there would be the 12 gems representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Through his offering, he would receive the forgiveness of the sins of all the people. And we know that according to Hebrews, that Jesus is our ultimate high priest. That he gave of himself, that he is both the offerer and the offering. Therefore, we no longer need earthly priests, correct? That's why Peter in his gospel calls us all priests, the priesthood of all believers. We have direct access to the Father and to the forgiveness of sins. But in the Old Covenant, this was part of the purpose of the Levites. And there were several other aspects to the duties that the Levites were called to, but I think we get the main idea. They were to be ministers. And we see here from chapter 21 that they were to be ministers amongst the people. That they weren't just to be in Jerusalem or they weren't to be just a tribe off to themselves in a certain location. No, they were to be in and amongst the people, scattered about, as it were. And so what we see here in chapter 21 was that there was 48 cities designated to them amongst the 12 tribes. One commentator says that there was no more than approximately 10 miles between these cities of of Levites throughout Israel. Again, the commentator goes on to say this, the purpose of allotment of these cities was surely related to the special Levitical ministry of covenant teaching among the 12 tribes as bases of operations so that the Levites could better infiltrate each of the tribes to instruct them in Yahweh's covenant. And I think that is absolutely correct. We might read chapter 21 and we might say, what are all these cities and their funny names and and we don't quite understand it, but we shouldn't miss the principle, should we? That God is faithful to have himself, his law, and his presence represented in every portion of the land in a sense to have God's ministers amongst God's people and that is a prayer that we should pray for 
every land, even today, is it not? That there would be God's ministers amongst every land. We as Americans are especially blessed and doubly so here in the South. That there is no lack of good, God-honoring churches. But we know that uh, that is not the case in all places. That's not the case in all places, not even in the United States, but it's surely not the case in all places in the world. Our desire would be that God and his word and his church would be represented in all places and in all lands. And that's why I think we should be, as a church, very supportive of the training of men for the ministries and the seminaries that train them and the seeing churches planted in this land and around the world. Because we desire that just as these 48 cities were scattered about, we should pray that there would be churches and God's ministers scattered about throughout all of the land, especially in the underrepresented places of the world. Because our prayer is that the knowledge of God would cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And this is the value, I think, of God's minister and God, godly churches. Even though we don't have a tribe of ministers anymore, I think we see several principles that come out of Joshua 21. We see the need for those to be trained and taught. We need the guarding of the precious worship of God, that which is pleasing to God. We need the teaching of all that God has given and all that he has commanded, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need to be pointed to the forgiveness of sins that is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. We need to hear the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we should desire that everywhere. And so the principles and purposes of the Levites still goes on today. And those called to minister uh, are, are... so needful uh, throughout the land. Well, what is it that is needed to have such ministers? Well, that is our third point then. We see the provision for God's ministers. Even though God's ministers are called to a spiritual task, they are still physical beings. Therefore, they have physical needs that need to be provided for and taken care of. And Joshua 21 lays out the principle, the right and just principle that these ministers should be provided for. Now, as we talk about this subject, we readily acknowledge that there are those that have used and abused this, much to their own shame, no doubt. Um, There's been many people that have gone into ministry and have fleeced the flock so to speak, for their own lust and for their own greed. And that is absolutely shameful. I read the other day of a local ministry, a ministry based right here in Cobb County, supposedly a Christian ministry that was supporting orphan care in Africa. And the director was arrested because he had allegedly siphoned off nearly $1 million dollars over five years. That is true. That is truly sickening that someone would use their position and use this guise of helping out, specifically orphans, to 
get rich themselves. But at the same time, we shouldn't go to the other extreme. That just because someone is called to the ministry, that they are called to suffer physical needs or suffer for not having that which is needful to them. And yet sometimes that often is the case. That Many can think, well, we don't want the minister to live too high on the hog. A minister is no doubt called to trials, but the lack of provision should not be one of them. The people of God should try and relieve a minister from this as much as possible. That's why I'm thankful in our denomination that as a call goes out to a pastor, as a congregation calls a man to the ministry, we have this language in the specific call. It says, so as to free you from the cares and worries of this world, we promise to pay you the sum of, and then puts in how much the the pay would be given. That's the right understanding, is it not? It's not just so that they would be able to have that lump sum of money. No, it's to have that lump sum of money so that they would be free from the cares and worries of the world, so that they would be able to minister freely. And I think, again, that is biblical language that is guarded and grounded here in Joshua chapter 21. And this carries over, I think, into the New Testament as well, as we think about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, that Paul talks about how God provided for himself. And he provided through Paul being a tent maker, at least in Corinth. And there might be times where that is the case, where someone might have to work bivocationally for a time, but I think Paul goes on to say that should not be the norm. For we read this in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, Who serves as a soldier? At his own expense. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of the fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting much of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is God concerned for the oxen? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And you see the principle there that as every vocation, there's the hopes of being able to gain that which you work towards. And the same provide, provision goes forward here for the Lord's ministers as they sow spiritually, they should also expect to reap material blessings from those that they are ministering amongst. And we, as a principle, pay for that which we value, do we not? And the more we value it, the more we are willing to pay at a higher price. And we should value the work of ministry in the church to pay those that minister and pay them well, And I do not say this out of a sense of bitterness at all on my part. This church has taken care of me and my family extremely well, and they're to, to be commended. 
In fact, this week I was blessed on two separate occasions with the Lord's provision to me and my family through this church specifically. And so I'm extremely thankful for it. My family and my wife are thankful for it. And I hope that will always be the case for any ministers and any staff that this church has because it's a good and biblical principle. And so I don't teach this because I have a bone to pick, far from it. But the principle is here, that the provision for God's minister must be given. And this is the beauty of preaching expositional sermons. You can't get mad at me for this being the next topic as we go through the book of Joshua. But the question for a church should not be how little can we get away with, but how much can we give to bless and to encourage. Again, as I say, that sadly is not always the case. I was speaking with one of our missionaries recently that was very discouraged. And he was discouraged because he was accused Um, by those that he was ministering to, at least a a very small minority, that he was trying to uh, get rich from from the ministry, which he absolutely was not. And he was told that his three-bedroom apartment for a family of four and a fifth, uh, or a a third child on the way, which would make him a family of five, was, was too big and that they were having to pay too much rent for such a lavish place as that three-bedroom apartments. And that is extremely discouraging because he and his work, in a sense, were being undervalued. And so the principle here is to give to the Lord, to give generously so that the work and the workers of that work would not be hindered in any way. And this is, I think, what is pleasing to the Lord and beneficial to his servants, that the servants are called to do his will, and that God's people, those that they minister amongst, should give adequate provision. Because, as we see, it's only through this that the spiritual ministry, that the gospel goes forth. And as the people give real physical dollars so the spiritual ministry is able to take place. And so we see here that God takes physical provisions and turns it into spiritual blessings through the work of those that minister among us. And they are spiritual blessings which are far greater because they are eternal. And so... As we see, let us give to God and let us give to God generously so that he would bless us and bless our land and specifically bless the work of ministry that is amongst us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you this night for the blessing of this principle of how you provide for us, how you provide for each and every one of us, and how you provide for your ministers and for your missionaries and for evangelists and those that work in ministry, O oh Lord, even though they are not providing a, a physical service or a physical product, Lord, they are providing something that is valuable to us. And so we pray that we would value them by giving 
of our dollars, giving of our money, giving of our time and talents, giving of our encouragement and blessing to them, O Lord, so that they would be strengthened in every way. Lord, we thank you that you minister amongst us through them and through your spirit. We pray this all in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.